Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with Scott Tobias, Tasha Robinson, and Genevieve Kosky. In our last episode, we discussed Helio Petri's The Tenth Victim, a 60s cult oddity about a game of death. This week, we'll return to the world of comical death sport via Jake Johnson's self-reliance. Johnson's been a reliably charming and funny actor in films and on television for over a decade now. He brings a distinct comic presence as a kind of underachieving man-child who suspects there's more to life than he's experienced, but doesn't have the ambition to look for it. So it's not surprising that his directorial debut plays like an extension of that persona. Johnson plays Tommy, a heartbroken Los Angeles resident who lives at home after a breakup, works at an unfulfilling job, and repeats the same dreary routine. Then he's offered a chance to participate in a game in which he'll be hunted for money, but there's a loophole. As long as he's in the presence of others, he'll be fine. There's also a problem with that loophole. His family doesn't buy the story, and the companions he picks up while playing the game, an unhoused man named James, played by Biff Whiff, and a fellow contestant named Maddie, played by Anna Kendrick, might not offer as much protection as they at first seem to. Will he survive and emerge a better person on the other side? That's a spoiler, but the film's on Hulu if you want to check it out. We'll be back to discuss it after the break. You have been selected to partake in the biggest reality show in the dark web. There will be people trying to kill you, the hunters. What are you talking about? There's people trying to murder me? Oh, shit! Very much so. You will have 30 days to survive. You will only be killed when you are alone. So let me get this straight. You cannot touch me if I'm with someone, and then I get a million dollars. What are you doing? What are you doing, man? Why'd you leave my side? I had to take a shit. Why didn't you wake me up and bring me with you? Because I'm taking a shit. Let's play. All right, everyone. Before we dig into it, we had to do a little flashback to our, our previous episode where we talked about uh, the 10th victim and Genevieve in our, our after, after film discussion, Genevieve recounted a family tradition where upon seeing a movie, she and her family would not talk about the movie as you left, get in the car. And then on the count of three, reveal their rating for this movie. It has to be a one to 10 whole numbers only. So we're going to recreate that here. Because none of us have discussed self-reliance outside of deciding. I, I, I don't think I'm so excited. I don't know what to say. This is okay. so, I am ready for this. All right. One, two, three, six. Five. six. Okay, oh, I was going to go six. <laughs> I thought I, you know, I was going to do six point five, but ultimately this made me made me laugh enough that that I, I'm feeling generous toward it. I, I I do like Johnson. I do like his kind of whole vibe. I'm looking forward to the second film from him more than <laughs> I think this one. Although, like I said, it made me laugh quite a bit. Why is everyone a, a little softer on this than I am? I would have done 6.52 if it had been allowable. Ultimately, for me, ratings kind of tend to be a little bit a combo of is what it's doing like worthwhile and does it do it well? And I think that this movie does something, I think, pretty damn well that is also just like a very small marginal thing. So that's that's how I ended up with this number. I enjoyed it. It made me laugh. It surprised me in quite a number of ways in what it turned out to be versus, I guess, what the subgenre would expect it to be. But in the end, like, I can't claim it's a deathless cinematic project that we will, uh, you know, all be talking about 10 years from now. <laughs> no, <laughs> we will not. Uh, uh, this is your, you know, your two and a half star C plus type of experience, in my opinion. It's a frustrating movie in some respects and then an, also a movie that's incredibly easy to watch it's a film that just needed more time and more effort put into it it's just like you've got a pretty solid idea it's connected 
to an interesting theme in terms of where this character is in his life and what he needs out of this game. But it just needs to be, you need to do more with it. It, just, it wasn't just, it was just so thin all the way around. And yeah. uh, that part of it was very frustrating for me. The part where I realized that it really didn't know what it was doing was the way it just kind of let the whole Anna Kendrick Maddie thing just kind of fall away. And then like at the last minute, oh yeah, we should probably mention this again. And then there she was, where it seemed like that was kind of central to the film in many ways. And I thought they were really charming together too. I thought that they had a really nice chemistry that that was my favorite section of the movie where they're kind of getting to know each other and they're both kind of goofy mixed up people and they maybe have found each other. And then they kind of just, you know, I'm not sure what happened in terms of like, there not being more of that. I truly wonder if, like, I interviewed Jake Johnson for this movie because I was taken with it and there were a bunch of questions I just wanted to ask him. And the surprising revelation for me that came out of this uh, interview was that he made this movie as kind of a combination of two films that he really loves, Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket and Jacob's Ladder, which I think is a (laughs) crazy pair of movies to smush <laughs> together and and he he gave me a bunch of pretty great quotes about it about how this movie is like sushi mixed with spaghetti and if those are not your tastes he does not blame you for finding it weird but they work for him but he's self-effacing in a way that it, it, like i i think there's a lot of him in this character and i truly wonder if what you're talking about didn't kind of come from a desire to not be the guy who writes a movie where he gets to get romantic with anna kendrick Like, Mm. they are a little bit of a classic, you know, schlubby guy gets incredibly attractive girl comedy movie kind of pairing. And I I wonder if he just didn't kind of didn't want to go there. Well, they've already played a couple before in Drinking Buddies. Yeah, but not in a movie that he wrote and directed. And sorry, Tasha, but I wanted to tag on to what you said about your interview with him, because I also heard the Bottle Rocket Jacob's Ladder thing from a, a South by Southwest interview or report we ran with him. I think maybe it was like how he introduced it at South by but he also mentioned in that interview that it began like years and years ago as a TV series idea specifically for Netflix yeah it, they were they'd put out sort of a call for content and right. he wanted it to be a Netflix serial I think he said that he thought it was too close to maniac but yeah they were they were like we're no sorry we're already making this it's called maniac <laughs> yeah. it's like well, I'm, I'm sorry what yeah these things are similar how? Yeah. And like, I think it's kind of a shame that it got turned into an unremarkable movie rather than a maybe more remarkable TV show or uh, even just a miniseries. Like, I don't necessarily think this is a, a conceit that could stretch for seasons and seasons, but like maybe an eight episode miniseries of this might have worked a little better for me because like I kept waiting to be surprised by this movie in a way that it just never did. And like, I kept thinking it was going to pull the rug out from under me. And and I think like it's kind of maybe trying to have its cake and eat it too, as far as like making you think that there are two readings you can have here, but there's really not. Like it doesn't support a second reading. Uh, the re- that reading being that it's all in his head, it's all a delusion, which I kind of suspect may have been Jake Johnson's like initial play because like the initial title for this was "Dog Delusions of Grandeur." Delusions <laughs> right there in the title. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, now that I now that you say that, like it was something I thought about during the film, and it would in fact explain why they felt it was too close to Maniac. If he, if you know, given how much of that show, mm-hmm. series, whatever you want to call it, is kind of themed around experiences that go on in people's heads, that's an interesting thought. Are there any twists in this movie? <laughs> is there, like, there's not a single twist, is there? I think the one thing it like kind of retains is the idea that Anna Kendrick's character that Maddie could be all in his head. And the ending is kind of the button on that ambiguity. But we see her interacting with James, you know, but he's the only person in Tommy's life that she interacts with that's like not involved with the game or from her life. So like I said, I think like there is sort of a faint toward like Fight Club interpretation, which I actually midway through this movie, I was like, oh, we could do a Fight Club, forgetting that we already have done Fight Club on this podcast. (laughs) But yeah, it ultimately just doesn't land there in a way that like feels fun to think about. It just feels like kind of a missed opportunity slash fake out, or at least that's how I felt about it, which is why I rated it a five. 
and I love Jake Johnson. So yeah, I think the twist is like when the, when they say if there's a twist, it's kind of like when they say you know it's a comedy series, right? You um, know, which yeah. is kind of it. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I, I guess I find him charming enough, and I laughed at enough. Like the things like the whole long speech about what sort of Michael Jackson inspired jacket uh, Boban Marjanovic was wearing, <laughs> the look on a- Andy Samberg's face when he was like, "Really, <laughs> really? Why?" <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. That a lot. And Wayne Brady's whole thing. I don't know. I, I think there's enough here to recommend it. But I think you know, if you if you, I disagree with nothing that any of you are saying. I think you really pegged it, Keith, as it's an incredibly easy movie to watch. Like, I, no, this Scott. strikes me. Scott, Scott's the other guy. Yeah, you have to say. Wait, you have to say the words like Scott. You really nailed it when you said this. Yeah, that was a really good insight that you had back then. And then we'll like we'll re- record that and we'll drop it into various episodes. Let me go back and uh, and retake this, Scott. I think you're entirely wrong when you say that this is a, a very easy movie to watch. This movie was so hard, so difficult to watch. I couldn't. I sh- I could have sworn that Keith said that. Okay. I'm going to grudgingly admit to agreeing with Scott about something, which is this movie being very easy to watch. Like, I think this is in some ways kind of a perfect streaming movie. Like, this is the uh, the kind of movie that you can put on and maybe semi pay attention to a little and like, you know, laugh and enjoy it. But like, you don't need to fully commit your emotions to it because I don't think it it fully commits its emotions to itself. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is like, a deep emotional movie. But on some level, that was why I found it fun is like I was kind of from the premise, I was expecting, you know, the, the story of a sad sack who gets over his misery and disaffection by, you know, nearly dying multiple times. I was expecting a lot of like running around with people trying their best to murder him. I was expecting as soon as Anna Kendrick showed up, like, a big emotional, like eternal sunshine level connection where they both find their their person in each other. And instead, what I got was just like a really amiable jaunt that doesn't really commit to any of those ideas because that's not what the movie is about. And Johnson's been very specific about that. Like, it's not about life or death, like dramatic struggles. It's not a thriller. It's a movie about human connection. And for me, despite the incredibly surreal aspects of a lot of this movie, that's kind of what makes it land is it's not about great big swings and implausible thriller action. It's about how life is kind of better when you're close to people, you know, when you have somebody in your life that you can share things with. Like, that's all it's saying. And it's not really a huge, profound statement. It's just it just happens to be very true. I think that comes out most in his relationship with James, right? I mm-hmm. think that's kind mm-hmm. of where the film succeeds, almost as like like as a hangout movie that breaks out in the middle of a movie that is ostensibly about a death game, right? Because he finds this guy who he can hire to be close to him, and they just get along pretty well. They just hang out together, and they have a nice little relationship. Mm-hmm. That was unexpected and charming, and I actually liked how straightforward the film plays it to the point where where you get right at the end game and they necessarily have to remove James from the from the uh, picture just because it would be just too boring a conclusion for the dark web to handle uh, you know just two guys that get along pretty well and like and like hanging out together and we'll just kind of be like that until the end of the game you can't really have a very exciting finish that way I like that part of the movie but I, I don't feel like the movie entirely defines itself in that way, or at least the premise itself makes it so hard for the film to be a hangout movie because we are counting the days. You know, he is being hunted by some people. That is a fundamental part of the movie, and it's being done for television or something, and there are ninjas about or, or whatever. Like, that's a part of the movie. It's, it's, it's unavoidable, and so you can't... So as much as, as the film tries to kind of make it about something else... You can't get to that subtext without seeing the text of it, which is that it's still a movie about a game of death. As much as I enjoy Biff Whiff in this movie, I think the ninjas are just unquestionably the best element in the whole thing. Yeah, I was getting ready to uh, bring up the ninjas and especially Eduardo Franco, who is such a distinctive screen presence with his long hair. Yeah, Every time he popped up, that was definitely a... A laugh for me. I like it when he shows up anywhere except for Stranger Things, but that's, right. that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> I, but I think that that smile is just, 
it's so necessary for making that character work. It's a very strange element in the midst of what is in some ways a very strange movie. We haven't mentioned the Lonely Island connection, which this movie was produced by the Lonely Island, Andy Samberg, you know, kind of popping himself in there and in fact, contributing to the dialogue and like how his character is going to be portrayed brings this into a kind of like sense of humor that I find kind of like familiar from their other projects and that I enjoy a lot. And they apparently like, you know, they produced, they kind of contributed ideas. They helped Johnson kind of brainstorm around it. But, you know, they didn't step in and write it like this isn't their project. It's them helping somebody who was kind of on the same wavelength as them. But for coincidental reasons, I happened to rewatch Palm Springs, another Lonely Island project much more central to them, just a few days before I saw Self-Reliance. And I saw a lot of the same sense of humor in it just dialed down a lot, you know, way less manic, fewer peaks overall, but still kind of the same sensibility. And it's kind of a shambolic sensibility that I tend to just really like. It's got more stuff in it, though. This needs more stuff, right? (laughs) This could probably uh, use a little more stuff. Shambolic, but it's just just like, man, just more. Just like you've got this idea that it's not bad. It's not a bad idea. Um, You've got some good people in, in, in this movie just like invest more it just feels like god it feels like a streaming movie i don't like that it's a movie that you can kind of just have on you know it's like a like a folding laundry type of experience like yeah that's that's not (laughs) great i don't love that i you know yeah tasha when you were saying this is like an ideal streaming movie like there's different definitions of like what's a good streaming movie but like for me this is like a movie i almost wish i had seen in a theater because it was just so easy to get distracted watching this at home because there isn't enough going on, especially once I like realized that there wasn't this sort of puzzle layer to it that I thought there may have been. It was like like I could feel my fingers itching to reach for my phone, you know, which is just like a, a scourge of the way we live now. Here's my tip. Here's my tip. And I don't put it in another room? It, and I should. Yeah. Well, across the room or something. Yeah. Down so you don't see if you're getting notifications. You know, I did. It, yes, it, it was across the room. But, you know, I can get up. I can get up and go yeah. get it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing happening that I'm interested in on screen. I'm only semi-mobile, so that's not. Uh, At a certain yeah. age, you don't, get a, you, you don't go to get up across the room. Yeah, Jimmy's the youngest one. Uh, yeah. So she'll, uh, this one. she can still get there. I will just say, I did see this in a theater. It played oh, one night what? in the theater. And I, I liked it. I found it very focusing as I, I tend to find seeing movies in theaters. Like I, I have the same problem everybody else has of, you know, if I'm at home, maybe it wouldn't hurt to just check my device a little bit. So I saw it in the theater and I liked it a lot there. Here's an oddity for you. I, I wrote about this over at Polygon. Maybe nobody in the world but me cares, but I thought it was interesting. Lamorne Morris, who was Johnson's co-star on New Girl, is not in the movie. But the two of them did a, a Q&A like video thing for that played after the movie in the theater that was like 10 minutes long. It, it was kind of shaped like a, a mock talk show called In Bed with Lamorne, where Lamorne just like interviews him. They're both wearing like black silk bathrobes and they're both holding like brandy snifters, no, a cognac. I think they specify they're drinking cognac. And the whole thing, I thought of you during the this whole thing, Genevieve, because I, I know how much you love post-movie Q&As. <laughs> and the whole thing is just straight up skewering movie yeah. Q&As. Like, Lamorne asks the most banal questions possible and then gets bored and changes the subject and doesn't listen to the answer. Johnson does a lot of, like, very bland self-promo and then gets distracted there are all of these photos of Lamorne, like many of them shirtless and gleaming and posed that he just like picks up and starts like fiddling with and admiring. The whole thing is very, very silly. And they did an edited version of it that's like two and a half minutes long that they put on the web, but it's just not as much fun. Uh, it mm-hmm. was a, a very weird anomaly for the the one day theatrical release. Those guys love goofing around together. They're they're buds. They they pop up on podcasts together and stuff. And I mean, they're they're great. Like they've got a fun vibe. And I mean, and Jake Johnson just has that vibe. Like we've all spent time in the presence of Jake Johnson before, right? Like he is just like a very kind of chill, nice, funny guy, and that comes across on screen, and which I think makes him very easy to watch. Also, Lamorne Morris, 
really good on the recent season of Fargo, which we yeah, dropped a bonus is. episode or was part of our uh, bonus episode recently. Well, we should do another bonus episode within this saying. I know. Like, you know no, it, was good, it, was, it was a good season. I think it's maybe even the best season of Fargo. Yeah. yeah. You know, in keeping with Johnson's, you know, no, we're, talking, persona, we're talking about Fargo now, Tasha. Sorry. <laughs> you you had your Patreon bonus episode to talk about Fargo without me. We're, we're talking about the movie that we're talking about. In a minute, we're probably going to talk about another movie, too. So Johnson's persona is just kind of like an amiable, nice guy. I think makes this movie land in a, a funny kind of way because, you know, he's playing an exaggeratedly comic character. Like he's playing a guy who's both hung up on his ex and completely oblivious as to why she broke up with him. And when they when they meet up again, she kind of spells it out and makes it very clear that, no, we, we went over this. You know why this happened. But he hasn't ingested it. You know, he hasn't taken it in. He kind of takes other people for granted. He kind of uses other people. He kind of uses his family members. He's not a very nice guy in a lot of ways, but he's sort of an, an amiable, easygoing slacker loser. And I'm curious where your sympathies for him fall in terms of, like, I, I don't think any of us was rooting for him to die, like to lose the game in a dramatic way. But like, how much do you like this guy as somebody who just of like clearly needs to be slapped into a better life by this uh, ridiculous thing that he's gotten himself into. I think he's really likable still. Like I like him more than any of his family members. I think. Oh, right? for sure. Yeah. I mean, they're all kind. Of, they're all kind of like badgering him and being mean to him, and it's like he's he's all right. Cut him some slack. He seems he's an easy, <laughs> amiable fellow. Like leave him alone. Well, he's also he's also a depressed fella when we when when we meet him and like that's always like a tricky question to answer like if you're if you're rooting for a character that is depressed because like they're not at their best and that's part of their characterization in this moment you're not seeing the best version of this person and his family hasn't seen that person and we don't even know how long like you know like it becomes when someone doesn't give you a reason to root for them, obviously you don't you don't root for them. But I think you can sympathize with the place he's in, which is just lost, you know, depressed and dead end job, all these things, you know. And it doesn't necessarily make you like him, but I think you can like sympathize with him on a human level because of that, and that is why you root for him. Well, speaking of rooting for people, we are talking about a, a two different game show sort of uh, <laughs> uh, films. We, we should probably move on and continue talking about this film in conjunction with The Tenth Victim, which we will do right after this break. I don't want to burst your bubble, man, but the game is a joke. They're laughing at us. Oh. That's good to know. <laughs> right? It's a good thing we met you. Yeah, that's probably everything we need, though. We you should... don't want to know how the game works? I, I do want to know how the game well, works. Well, we're still playing, of course so I, I don't... Yeah, please tell us. They pick a certain type of contestant. You want to know what the type is? Analytical? Kind of cute. Hell no. They pick people really going through shit, like struggling. Those are the ones they take advantage of. The kind of people, when other people start to doubt them, they doubt themselves, too. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Yeah, well, let's start with murder. We should always start with murder, right? <laughs> In the tenth victim, people do actually die, so there there is a big difference right there. Yeah, I just want to point out, Keith. Actually, the connection we have written down is murder, but make it funny. Murder, make it funny. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, both of these movies attempt to do in in some way or another. In the case of Self Reliance, it's. I think much more conceptual. It is much more conceptual. Do we actually see anyone die? We see like no. some some we see some violent action, but there is no actual murder. And there is actual murder in, in the tenth victim. It's it's bloodless murder and often comes with a side of a joke about, you know, I'm going to have to fine you for that parking uh, job you did, but the murder is fine. <laughs> <laughs> that was a pretty good one, actually. I like that yeah, one. Yeah, that, uh, that, 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 that was one of the better jokes for me. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a key point, though, be, with these two movies is that the whole murder but make it funny part is the fact that the murder, if it even happens at all, is bloodless. And so we're not really disturbed enough to have the whimsical 
tone of either film being sort of thrown off of its axis or something. It's not these these films are not really dark satires as, as much as I think a film like the Tenth Victim could have been steered in that direction quite easily, given that given what we might learn about you know this dystopia. Do you, Scott? As uh, I'll ask you, as uh, someone who famously loves violence, do you mm-hmm. think either <laughs> either of these movies would have been improved by the addition of oh, more yes. explicit uh, violence? Sure. Yeah, I think they would. I mean, I think it could be funny. I mean, it, you know, if you what would uh, Paul Verhoeven's The Tenth Victim be like? I think it would be oh, yeah d- different. <laughs> but no, but I'm just it saying, would be a film I would not want to see. I'll tell you that right now. Maybe. No. Well, that's you. I, I would certainly want to see anything he does, but like he knows how to make a film that is both extremely violent and also funny and satirically sharp, you know, at his best. I mean, he could, he, you know, the, you, you look at your, your, your Robocops and your Starship Troopers is, so, so it's possible. <laughs> uh, but I do think, but I do think there is a, there, there would be kind of in both cases, a, a disruption to tone, to a tone that they're trying to strike, which is kind of whimsical and light and, you know, spares a lot of, I mean, you know, it's not like, it's not like self-reliance is a movie that's, that's revealing disturbing things about the dark web they're just it's just like it's just it's just basically like where would such a thing like this even exist i hear there's something called the dark web out there (laughs) maybe they'll be on there i don't know how it works Uh, and i think just on a plotting level like maybe the reason for it to be on the dark web is so that like no one in his family can experience it and like add that whole layer of like them not believing him because if it was on tv obvious like it'd be much easier to confirm but the dark web is just like something that is unknowable to the vast majority of the population are we on the dark web is the show on there (laughs) listeners if you know how to get our show on the dark web (laughs) let us know Oh, that'd be so cool. See, you, you don't want your show on the dark web. Then, you know, the dark web people come for you and like murder Scott you could, on camera. I have a us. lot of nuclear warheads that I need to move here, people. They're just piling up in the garage. I just want to make it very clear that when Scott is murdering me on the dark web, like as, as a vengeance for every time I've disagreed with him on film, I'm going to be disagreeing with him the entire time about his method of killing me. I'm going to be telling him that it's just, you know, this particular torture regimen is just like ill-conceived and not very convincing. I will argue to my dying breath. But I, I do think that the whole idea of, you know, this this exists on the dark web is just very much a satire of the endless run of dreary, you know, kind of torture porny films about mm-hmm. here's the show on the dark web where the more people tune in, the faster we murder this person. Or mm-hmm. this is where you can see torture and snuff is on the dark web. So, you know, it does it does serve that plot function. But it also, I think, is meant to kind of tip off a, a savvy viewing audience that, you know, we we don't need to explain how or why this exists. You know, oh, no, the authorities don't know about it. It's on the dark web. Oh, no, we don't have to worry about how such a thing would find an audience or what that audience would be like. It's on the dark web. Like, I, I just I feel like it's a kind of a punchline that doesn't need any any elaboration when they say it's for a show on the dark web. <laughs> now, now I have to share with you one of my all-time favorite favorite tweets. The, <laughs> the, the tweet is Joe Buck voice, Joe Buck being a, a uh, sports announcer, rocket launchers, snuff films, and human livers. Find it all on the deep web. The deep web. Live moss. <laughs> anyway, that's it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, sorry. Go Scott ahead. reading us a tweet from Joe Buck is maybe yeah. the most Scott thing to happen on this podcast. I just, I, just like, like the idea of of uh, of those stupid kind of product interstitials that they throw into football games uh, being about the dark web. It's amazing. This is, this is the explain the explain your joke podcast. Uh, these two episodes. <laughs> I, think, I think everybody knew that one. I got it, Scott. Scott, do you have like a bookmark folder of your favorite tweets? No, just in my brain. Like that one was like, oh okay. my God, they're talking about the dark web. The dark Live web. Moss. Live Moss. Ah. <laughs> uh. So, so, so I was wondering, there's a connection that, that was suggested right at the end of our discussion of self-reliance that I think Genevieve was talking about, that I think really figures into 
the tenth victim, which is that which is the characters played by Marcello Mastroianni and Ursula Andress, and, and then the character played by Jake Johnson, and their motives for participating. Right? I mean, they they both kind of are into this game out of a sense of ennui or really just sense of, sense of, of their lives really not going anywhere kind of a boredom maybe you know loneliness something like that there's something that this the, that the game itself kind of is um i don't know expression of 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 their own discontent or ex- existential malaise or something that, that was kind of where i felt like mm. the connect one of the connections that was strong between these two movies yeah the idea that both of those characters are engaging in this in order to feel more alive is something that neither of them articulate all that much like you you get it from tommy at the beginning in terms of why he's willing to buy into it but then you know he doesn't he doesn't overemphasize it. Like another movie might have him, you know, saying after every encounter with somebody who tries to kill him, like, I feel so alive. Like I've never, I haven't felt this like engaged in years or whatever. But no, he mostly just finds it a little scary and a lot weird, especially when he can't get people to like listen to him or believe him about it. The running gag of somebody assaults him and he starts trying to tell people about it. And even though we've just seen it happen, the way it comes out of his mouth, you're immediately like, nope, I wouldn't believe somebody who told me that either. A giant dressed like Michael Jackson tried to murder you, huh? Ellen DeGeneres. Yeah. I I just, I found that really funny. But uh, no, I, I agree that both of these characters are coming out of uh, broken relationships where they didn't get what they wanted. And both of them are maybe a little hesitant about entering a new relationship. And neither one of them ends up romantically where they might have wanted to as a result of this whole story. They're both also motivated by money as another connection I'm, I'm going to throw out mm-hmm. there. Is, is that- and that, uh, the amount of that money? Um, each, each film, $1 million. That's right. But Marcello's Mastriani's character is broke because, you know, women always be spending the money. <laughs> well, they've, they've specifically been spending his winnings that he's yes. made in previous rounds of the hunt, which, sorry to interrupt you, Keith, but it just raises a question that I had, which is, do we think that Marcello was this bored and disaffected when he entered the game or did the game make him that mm. way? Interesting question. I kind of think that that's who he is. Like, I, I don't necessarily see a, a past where he was like a young and sprightly young thing, like bounding eagerly into relationships. Like he he does have that like, you know, new wave, uh, disaffected ennui kind of uh, remove because, you know, at the, both at the time and I think even today, it's not caring about stuff is considered cooler than caring about stuff. Caring about something passionately is geeky or dorky, but just being far too cool for and above it all is kind of the epitome of cool. So you get all of these characters that, you know, I could hardly care less if they're being, you know, pursued by a ridiculously attractive woman who's trying to lure them to a specific spot in front of the Coliseum so she can murder him in the middle of a tea ad. Uh yeah, I, I kind of think he was always that way. See, the thing that I get hung up on, and I agree that like kind of based on what we get in the movie and certainly based on the performance, like that is probably the intended read of that character. But I get hung up on the idea that like this hunt is specifically meant for people who have violent tendencies. That is what pushes them into the game. I don't know. We are not told like how that is determined or do they volunteer or it seems like they volunteer. But again, kind of going back to the sort of theory I was noodling around with in in the first half, like I do think there's something kind of interesting to this idea that the game in its intent to undercut these violent tendencies, it dulls everything about <laughs> about the the players in the in the process and just kind of makes them these bored, disaffected people because they are murdering people and you have to like disassociate uh, and be disaffected to be able to do that. And that just kind of seeps into all aspects of their life related to the hunt or or not. So I think like just in terms of that reading, like bringing a little more oomph to the 10th victim, that is how I am choosing. To, I am choosing to read that the game made them that way. But acknowledging that like there's nothing in the film itself to support that. <laughs> 
And then uh, Tommy is kind of the flip side of that. Like right. he's disengaged from his life. I don't I don't know that he's bored, but he's lost his sense of connection. He's lost his sense of understanding the world. And there's a character that I feel much more so, you know, from what we know about his relationship and his history. Like, I think there was a time when he felt connected and, and passionate and thought that he had everything going for him and that he's drifted away from that. Less into super cool, disaffected ennui and much more into depression, as you say. So the game kind of does reinvigorate him, like not in a way that he feels a need to explain to the camera, like emphatically, but we certainly see him more engaged with life and more connected with other people as a result. They they both kind of end up more connected with other people as a result, mm -hmm. just again, not necessarily in the, the romantic ways they might have uh, hoped for. I mean, where Tommy ends up in this movie really mirrors another movie we could have connected could have done with this which was the game the, mm -hmm. the fincher film and that and that it is the whole thing is a you know i guess spoiler alert here kind of a big therapeutic experience that he needed to kind of go through in order to kind of come out the other side in it and you know appreciate you know have more, greater a greater sense of self a greater appreciation for life Etc. Through this, you know, elaborate setup, but we didn't choose that. We chose the tenth victim, which is which is fine. But yeah, I, I, but it is interesting to see to see kind of the arc of both of these movies, and, and there, because there are there are decent enough parallels, I think, between Tommy and Marcello and uh, in these movies to make that work. There's also a sense that in some ways they're engineering this sort of personal breakthrough for Tommy by, you know, putting his father, bringing his father into the picture, whereas Marcello, any sort of uh, personal breakthrough is, is, is of his own creation and or sunset worship. Um, <laughs> one, or the, one or the other, I guess. The whole thing with Christopher Lloyd and the the father payoff in self-reliance is maybe one of the elements that I don't think works. Like mm -hmm. I I feel like Johnson as screenwriter there was trying to kind of subvert or undercut the way that that could have gone in terms of they produced his missing father for a big cathartic moment. And he's just like from the beginning, he's like, nope not doing this, not doing it here, not doing it for the show, not doing it for an audience and not doing it with you, period. And he walks away from it and the whole scene ends up very feeling very curtailed and unsatisfying. And I think there's a courage in that. You know, he's he's definitely breaking with convention, but it also just ends up being kind of a, a nothing of a scene. And especially when Christopher Lloyd shows up for something, you don't you don't want a nothing like you want something to happen. Mm -hmm. You you want him to be utilized. And, you know, the especially way when he's in the opening credits and you spend the whole movie wondering when Christopher <laughs> Lloyd is going to show up, <laughs> when is he going to show up and, and how is he going to be used? But yeah, like compared to how Marcelo reacts when his parents are suddenly revealed out of nowhere, like how he does kind of like break that ennui and like become very defensive and protective and actually aggressive around them. You know, he he does seem to be attached to them and he does care. And that's so much more satisfying and interesting a character beat than a straight up, I'm noping out of this scene and we're just never going to bring it up again. I mean, we kind of like already eased into one of our other connections we have written down, which is sidelined parents, although in uh, self-reliance, I mean, Christopher Lloyd's character does fit that, but there's mom figures too uh, for both Tommy and Maddie, who one more supportive than the other, but also like Maddie's mom is kind of kind of literally sidelined. You know, she's just like she's her uh, plus one, I guess. But yeah, I guess I was just kind of opening this up to discuss the other parental figures in self reliance, and I I think in Tenth Victim, it's we just have the one scene right of his parents. There's no no other ones, right? Right. Yeah. Correct. Okay. So probably not a lot more to say there, but I guess I'm curious what uh, if you guys have any feelings on the two sort of mirror mom figures in self-reliance. I actually really enjoyed Nancy Lenahan as as Tommy's mother. I kind of wanted to bring her up in the opening segment where we were just discussing that movie and like <laughs> all of its interesting little cameos. Or maybe when, just when we were discussing his family and how they're kind of awful. 
I think his, the the writing of his mother as a character who tries to be supportive to her, you know, kind of needy and wearying son who once again lives at home and shows no sign of or interest in like getting out on his own again, who keeps making demands of her that, you know, she just very clearly comes across as an older woman who's ready to have her own life, who's ready to do independent things and like maybe live a more interesting life than he is living. And he keeps kind of like dragging her back down with his expectation that she kind of exists to, you know, service his needs. That also feels like a, a little bit of a subversion in that she's just clearly kind of got one foot out the door of the relationship and she comes across as nice. She's not like an over over the top, like comedic, cynical or obnoxious mother figure who keeps trying to get him married off or trying to boot him. She just comes across as like a very sincere lady who wants the best for her children, but sometimes finds them exasperating since they're adults who won't adult. And I really enjoyed that, the way that character is written and the way it's performed. I agree. But at the same time, I think that so Tommy and Maddie have like kind of very similar situations, which is another thing that was kind of giving me the whole fight club reading until that became untenable. But you know, they both live at home with their with their mothers, they both like lost their fathers at, at a young age and have issues surrounding that. So like, there's this like very clear parallel set up between them. And their moms are a part of that. Uh, you know, one one of their moms is willing to to be on this uh, game adventure with them, and the and the other isn't. And it just ended up being kind of like a dog that didn't bark, especially as it pertains to Maddie. Like Maddie as a character just like disappears in a really weird way from the the th third act of this movie, and by extension, her her mom. But their moms in particular is like another element of this movie where I felt like they're could have been something more there. Maybe there was more there at some point, and it just didn't get developed fully enough. But it was sidelined, you might say. Indeed. Or was cut down for time. Uh, yeah. One of the things Johnson emphasized when I talked to him was he really wanted this movie to be like a tight 90. Like he just felt that comedies have no business lingering over that point. And the process of condensing it down from like a potential eight episode Netflix story, which, you know, to be fair, he had not scripted. He just kind of had all of the beats and ideas in his mind. Mm -hmm. And then condensing that down to a 90 minute movie, I, I think probably a bunch of stuff got shaved off yeah. in terms of, you know, characters who could have been or maybe should have been more. So we should talk about the way these movies, I forget which of my brilliant co-hosts, I think it was Tasha, uh, added to our list of connections, a qualified win. No, that was that was me. Oh, that, okay, the other, the other <laughs> so that, So that's payback first for Tasha mixing you and Scott up. Oh, okay. Uh, well, anyway, I, I'm, all, I'm all compliments for the suggestion. But like, neither, everyone gets an ending. Uh, I'd say Tommy's is probably uh, more easier to describe as happy, than Marcello's, but Marcello also, I don't know. He's How not feel dead. The end? No, he's not <laughs> he might dead. Be. He might be. You know, and, and there are worse things to be than married to Ursula Andress, <laughs> um, but uh, perhaps not an Ursula Andress who <laughs> not, wants to Not kill in you. real life. There's just like five, <laughs> like five different... Um, husbands or something anyway uh, perhaps 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 but anyway well what do we, how do you feel about the way that each of these characters end up in comparison to one another i mean i i feel bad that i keep like harping on what self-reliance could have been but like the manner in which he wins is another element where i was like okay this is all a delusion because like the the twist of of his win because he does win but is that the million dollars are in uh, i think it's it's Greenland currency, Kroner, <laughs> uh -huh. uh, you know, which uh, and it's going to be paid out in like 400 monthly installments that come out to, I think, like maybe a Four couple grand, grand a month. month. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. That's, that's a, you know what? Which, As a freelancer, I think that's a nice, right. it's a well, nice steady bit of income. Right. Like, like, every month. 
Right. Well, and, and to what I was saying about thinking like this could have potentially been like a twist. It's like like that's a that's a salary or that that is a you know some sort of like regular regular monthly <laughs> salary that someone could have for a regular regular reason and not winning it on on a game show. I think it was just ultimately just a a, a laugh line, which is fine. And as far as the tenth victim goes, like. This is sort of another place where I think a little more information about how this world works would be useful because we don't really know what happens when they flee the game, which is what they did. You know, um, <laughs> they quit the game. They or they faked. Maybe they kind of faked their own deaths. It's unclear, like if that was at all believable or meant to be believable. At least unclear to me. <laughs> Everybody just turned but- away. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> While Marcello got up and just sort of walked away. Right. It's like 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 none of the none of the twenty or so people around saw that. Yeah. So like they're not gonna get a monetary payout, obviously. So like the you know, the the real prize is love, I guess. But also like are they gonna get hunted down and thrown in jail or worse for having bailed on this game? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, like you can you can imagine whatever future you want mm-hmm. for them, uh, up to and including him immediately filing for divorce and then them <laughs> hanging out for six years while it, he he tries to get it through the Italian courts. I honestly find it hard to like even in this extremely wry kind of like fantasy future. I find it hard to believe that they are actually legally married after whatever that was of a ceremony on the plane. <laughs> but I I would think that just based on the way things work, the game for them continues until one of them murders each other. And the question, you yeah. know, if there was a sequel, the the question would just be does one of them crack? Like, does the relationship continue? They're kind of in a detente where they both need to be able to trust each other and continue the relationship on a non-murder basis up until the point where one of them decides to turn it back into a murder basis and continue the game, which she has even more motivation than he does to do since she's on her 10th victim and, you know, will become a one of a very small number of worldwide heroes who get preferential seating at sporting events and discounts <laughs> on movie tickets if she just murders him. Um, I mean, I like I, I might might murder my husband for preferential <laughs> seating at sporting events and discounts on film tickets. I'm not going to say one way or the other because he listens to this. Uh, I never get good seats at sports. I would love definitely to get not going to murder you. Considering you don't really care about sports and get to see movies for free uh, as part of your job, like that's really saying something. Hush, hush, Genevieve. It's all about the feeling of of access. It's all about the feeling of perks. Also, I want my own ticker tape parade, which apparently you get at least if you're a a Chinese uh, tenth victim killer. Definitely not stock footage either. That was definitely not. You also get train. You also get train and plane discounts too. So. Oh yeah, I could use those. Flight flight is pretty expensive. Tax exemption. Hmm? I wrote down all everything he got because well, I was here's, very interested here's the in thing that. though he, he does our taxes so if I murder him for the tax exemption I not only like I get the discount but then I have to actually do the calculations myself mm. I'm not sure that's worth no it. one wants that honestly right. as far as the compensation for the game in both cases go I'm just I'm slightly fixated on the fact that it's one million dollars <laughs> uh, not just because I like saying that because of Austin Powers a movie that I didn't care for back when it first came out, let alone <laughs> how it might play now. But because a million dollars in in 1965, you know, probably did seem like a pretty significant payout, especially since it's the 10th payout you've gotten in the game. Not necessarily the 10th million dollar payout, but certainly it seems like they're probably escalate. But there's kind of a, a humor value to like, yes, he's an ordinary guy in self-reliance and a million dollars could be a life-changing amount of money. But much as we see in Austin Powers, like it doesn't have that ring of like, this is screw everything. I'm going to buy an island kind of money, you know, in exchange for us trying to murder you for a month, you get a million dollars. I, it sounds a little low to me in this day and age. You know, you get you get more money than that for like agreeing to be on Squid Game, the uh, the Netflix reality show. <laughs> 
I, I want a final thought before we leave these entirely. Assuming that the game in A Self-Reliance was on the level, like it, it was the parameters that were laid out to him by when he first learns about it. Which you think you would do a better job surviving? One round of the 10th Victim game or 30 days of the self-reliance game? I mean, I I have better friends than Tommy does. Like, <laughs> I, I can find somebody to be three feet away from me for a month. Uh, no problem. They might get sick of me by, by the end, but they would do it to save my life and Tasha, possibly can I be get your a friend payout. for 30, 30 days? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not for a full 30 days. I think uh, both of us watch a lot of movies and we would uh-huh. we would disagree about them violently yes. in a way that... Would it break. would turn into the 10th victim game instead. <laughs> not only that, Scott, uh, we we know for a fact that when they came around to bribe you with a nice hotel room in order to ditch me so they could murder me, you would oh, yeah, take them I, up on it. Yeah, I would. I would for sure. <laughs> You'll love your nice hotel rooms. But uh, that yeah. said, the 10th victim combat involves a lot of people running around uh, at, at high speed, like just manically shooting at each other. And there's, there is no way that I could keep up either that level of onerous physical activity or the amount of dodging it would be necessary to keep from being shot by somebody who very clearly has one of a, one of those magic movie guns with infinite bullets in it. Is anyone going to choose the tenth victim approach here? No, you just dodge one, you know, one round, right? You can so do you're, it. So you you are the victim, not the hunter. In this, or you could be the hunter. I, mean, then, then I don't like think what? I could be the hunter. I, like yeah, I, like really? I no. like. Sorry, I know it's controversial, but I don't think I could murder someone for sport. Yeah, I didn't even thought about it from that perspective. Um, yeah. You never wanted to get the drop on somebody. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, if, if anyone was going to want to do the tenth victim version, I would put my money on Scott. <laughs> Clearly, Genevieve, you just aren't the kind of aggressive type who's going to start World War Four if you're not contained in some way by a, a worldwide hunt. Well, all right. Well, can't be everything to all people. I think we all learned a little bit about ourselves this episode. Wait, wait, but we didn't learn enough about Scott. Scott, uh, we we all do want to know whether you think you could murder somebody, you know, for one million dollars. Mm, no, I'm not. A, I'm a marshmallow. I'd, I'd, I'd take this. I'd take. I'd take the self reliance route for sure. Okay. Well, if you want to watch these films, the tenth it's it's pretty easy actually. The tenth victim is currently streaming basically everywhere. Prime, mm-hmm. Tubi, Vudu, Night Flight. I think it's the first time we got to recommend the Night Flight streaming service on this uh, on the <laughs> show. But I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan of that. It's also on Blu-ray and DVD. Self Reliance is currently on Hulu now and forever. Um, <laughs> we'll be right back to talk about your next picture show after a short break. Finally, it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put something interesting on your radar. I understand that Genevieve has the ideal <laughs> companion piece to these films. Uh, well, we, you know, we already talked about a bunch of like different movies that kind of fit this similar premise. Uh, you know, the the game, uh, Hunger Games, Battle Royale, you know. We could have recommended any of those, but instead I'm going to recommend a reality to show to kind of keep with the, the self-reliance part of this pairing. Uh, and it is a reality show based in murder. I am talking about The Traitors, uh, specifically season two of The Traitors, which is currently streaming on Peacock. This is a reality show format that there's international versions of it. It just came to the US last year with its first season. And premise-wise, this is basically the party game mafia. You have a small group of people who are secretly designated traitors, and then the rest of the cast are faithful, and the traitors have to kill off the faithful episode by episode, and the faithful have to try to banish people that they think are traitors. It's a pretty familiar and simple mechanic. It's been kind of game showified by there's a, a pot of money that, that they can win and they have to complete challenges uh, to add to that pot of money. But what's really fun about the traders is it is so over the top campy and the murder of it all. Like if you like just the 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 one million dollars energy we've been bringing to this discussion, like that is all of the traders. It's hosted by Alan Cumming in a 
incredible array of outfits like that might be a reason enough alone to watch is is alan uh, cummings wardrobe and he is just making a meal out of this hosting job just putting mustard on every line he says like just i want a super cut of him saying murder in his scottish <laughs> accent it takes place at a at a castle in the scottish highlands there it's it really leans into the idea that these people are dying and being murdered obviously they're not they're just leaving the castle it's it's not you know it's kind of similar to the 10th victim in that like it uses the aesthetics of murder without any actual violence happening and another twist on this second season of the u.s traders the first season was the cast was evenly split between people who have participated in previous reality series from kind of all across the reality TV spectrum, you know, your competition games, your uh, docu-soaps, stuff like that. And then it was half normal people. And basically, in the first season, they wiped the floor with the normal people. <laughs> you know, the, the, the people, su- surprise, the people with experience in reality television did really well on the reality uh, television game show. So the second season <laughs> is all reality TV alums from all over the the dial. There's sort of like a clear divide happening between the different types of reality TV paradigms. You have like your strategy game players from like Survivor and Big Brother and The Challenge. And then you have your your housewives, uh, your real housewives and your sort of Bravo docu-soap folk. And you have your your dating show dummies from, <laughs> from, you know, Bachelor and Love Island and all that. And just it's really kind of fascinating, even as someone like I engage with reality TV pretty surface level, like I don't really watch any of the shows these uh, people are on, with the exception of one, there was a contestant from Drag Race. But like, even as someone who only engages with reality TV sort of like, intellectually, (laughs) um, it's really fascinating to kind of see how these lines are divided between like, what skills you bring as a reality TV person. So yeah, it's and it's super fun. And again, Alan Cumming, it's a hoot. So I just, I think it's a really kind of fun chaser to this pairing as both for the way it aestheticizes murder and, you know, makes it funny. It's a very funny uh, show. And again, the reality show aspect of it. So Traders season two, it's uh, in the middle of season two as you're listening to this on Peacock. And the first season is already there as well. So I'd recommend giving it a shot. I was dubious. I was dubious about the traders, and now I'm just a, a full-throated advocate. So, yeah, it takes a lot for me to actually turn on a reality show, particularly a reality show that draws from the worlds of the shows that you mentioned, <laughs> which is just so not yeah. my world. But the the coming factor makes makes me very curious about this, as does, your, of course, your your recommendation of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. We'll be back next week with another set of episodes. Genevieve, do you want to tell us about these episodes? The Oscar nominations dropping at the exact moment we were trying to pull a decent pairing out of the dregs of the February movie release calendar, sorry, Argyle, made us realize that due to scheduling complications, we were never able to give the full Next Picture Show treatment to a film from last year that appeared on all of our best of lists, and that's back in the cultural conversation now after getting a stack of Oscar nominations. No, it's not Oppenheimer, but you can head over to our Patreon if you want to hear our bonus episode on that one. Instead, we're happy to get to talk about Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, which is set at the cusp of the 1970s and openly aims to capture the filmmaking spirit of that decade. We're taking an overdue look at Payne's film through that inspirational lens by pairing it with one of the films he took as a model, even screening it for his cast and crew in preparation for filming. Hal Ashby's 1973 feature The Last Detail, which parallels The Holdovers in a few broad ways. Jack Nicholson and Otis Young star as a pair of experienced Navy men serving as a prison escort for court-martialed seaman Randy Quaid. Like The Holdovers, it's a film about an unlikely trio of people forced together by circumstance, gradually getting to know each other and revealing layers of themselves over the course of an impromptu trip. For now, we welcome your feedback on Self-Reliance, The Tenth Victim, or anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's discussion, where can we find everyone these days? Let's start with you, Tasha. I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com. I am on Blue Sky at Tosh Robinson. Heck, I'm also on uh, Letterboxd as Tosh Robinson. I'm pretty much everywhere that I go as Tosh Robinson. I Maybe I don't have much imagination. 
But as it turns out, my name is Tasha Robinson. Genevieve, what about you? Uh, I am also Genevieve Kosky on any uh, platform you wish to find me on. Uh, whether I'm active on that platform is uh, another question. Uh, but hey, look me up and find out. And uh, when I'm not not social mediaing, I am uh, <laughs> the TV editor at Vulture. Scott, what about you? You can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, at Letterbox at, at Scott underscore Tobias, at Blue Sky at, at Scott Tobias. And of course, uh, in terms of the actual writing, uh, I, I, Keith and I have our, our newsletter. It's uh, The Reveal, thereveal.substack.com. Uh, we're doing a lot of exciting stuff there. And if you subscribe, you know, we're, we have a big subscriber poll coming up. Pretty excited about that. Um, and then you can find my work in the New York Times at uh, Vulture, uh, Guardian, other fine publications. Keith? That's right. TheReveal.substack.com. That's the reveal. That's a newsletter that Scott and I co-write. You can find me, you can find my writing at places like Vulture and sometimes The Ringer, TV Guide, and different places. And you can find me on various socials at KFIPS3000, some of which I'm, as Genevieve suggested, some of which I'm more active at than others. But yes, Letterboxd. I'm going to be on Letterboxd a lot this year. So follow me there. And I maybe I'll follow you back. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net, on Blue Sky at The Next Picture Show, and you can get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. 